Your beliefs are a sieve. You encounter an idea and you catch it or let it filter through. A film that's trying to challenge your beliefs may not filter through in one chunk, though. Maybe it does say something important, even if most of its message can be discarded. Think for yourself by hanging on to what works and letting go of the rest. Welcome to Cinema Credo, conversations on film and faith. I'm Adam Bless. Strength and mercy for me And from me every day Life and light will bleed into love Michael McGrath. I am a Episcopalian, born and raised Catholic. My mom took us out of the church when I was around 12 um, for a variety of reasons, but I kind of drifted away from the church in my teenage years, got a little bit reinterested in Christianity broadly when I was in my early 20s, and then uh, got confirmed into the Episcopal Church a couple years ago. And uh, I've picked The Life of Brian as my movie. Monty Python's The Life of Brian. Now, this wasn't your first choice. You, uh, nope. <laughs> you had, uh, unfortunately, on my end, I had a little miscommunication and uh, had forgotten that someone already wanted to talk about The Village, uh, but that is the movie that you had wanted originally to do. Uh, oh. Why The Life of Brian, then, settling in? Um I don't know. These two movies are kind of both really important to me for almost completely separate reasons. I kind of, uh, without reservations, love The Village. Yeah. Uh, M. Night Shyamalan is one of my favorite movies. Uh, so my favorite directors in Village is probably my favorite movie of his. I think that it's easy to write him off as kind of a joke because of all the twist endings and whatnot, but I think a lot of his movies usually kind of have a twist ending because they have a real empathetic... Um, relationship with their main characters and they don't want to kind of use dramatic irony to let the audience in on something that the characters don't mm-hmm. know and exploring the the tight-knit uh, situation of a, of a faith community like that is, is really interesting to me. Life of Brian on the other hand uh, I kind of have a love-hate relationship with but I really appreciate the irreverent nature of the movie, the way it treats the Gospels, it kind of lets you see them in a new light because it kind of forces you to not take the material seriously in yeah. a way. Yeah. That's, um, it's interesting. You sent me a link also to a uh, an interview show from British television of, uh, mm-hmm. of who was it? It was Graham and, uh, oh, goodness. Just lost everyone's name. John Cleese and Michael Palin, not Graham. Yeah, John Cleese and Michael yeah. Palin. And then... The Bishop of South London and uh, Malcolm Muggeridge, who is uh, quite quite a gentleman, too. Uh, but they're, they're talking about the movie, um, and uh, everyone's pretty uh, pretty dumb about it, um, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> yeah. But uh, um, it's interesting comparing the... The bishop's response to this movie, even uh, obviously you're you you talked briefly in uh, in the sort of background material you gave me about your childhood priest, 
Uh, mm-hmm. And I, I don't suppose that in the uh, 11 years or so that you were under him, he uh, talked about the life of Brian, but you talked particularly about one, one instance of his that I think is diametrically opposed to how the Bishop of South London uh, features, yep. <laughs> features his religion. Would you, would you talk about that? Yeah. So it, right after nine 11, uh, we went to church. I think it was the Sunday after, um, which would have been know, five days after nine 11. So it was still obviously very traumatic and fresh, especially when I was only 10 years old. Um, my, my priest at the time, father Bob, took all the kids up to the altar and he had a picture uh, kind of on a you know poster board with Osama bin Laden on it and he gave all the kids thumbtacks to kind of do what they would. <laughs> um, so everyone kind of stabbed Osama bin Laden with these thumbtacks, uh, one, one kid memorably in the eye. And then when we were all done, the priest took away the, the photo of Osama bin Laden to reveal that Jesus was behind him on the poster board. Um, and this was you know, one of the most memorable church services I've ever been to because it really just, you know, makes you understand what right. love your enemies right. means. It's something you, know? you remember 20 years on. So that's, that's not exactly. Bad. Uh, no, <laughs> it's interesting. Just the nature of, of us recording this and, you know, this episode isn't posting for, for quite a while after we record, but, but the timing worked out. We happen to be recording on, um, Epiphany Sunday, uh, uh-huh. in the liturgical calendar. Uh, so today is the day that uh, we focus on the Incarnation. And uh, yeah. in the Bishop of South London's critique of this film, he talks quite a bit about the Incarnation. Um, and it's... The way I view the Incarnation, and the way even uh, my church service talked about the Incarnation today, is a reminder of the humanity of Christ, that that it is it is uh-huh. Jesus becoming human. Uh, and in becoming human, he is like all of us. And what your priest did after 9-11 is a reminder of that, whereas frequently what the Bishop of South London tried to do in that interview is to to say, well, he it was a crucifixion, so you can't, uh, but, but sure, everyone was getting crucified, but this is the same, it's not the same crucifixion. And and what, what Palin and, Cleese kept bringing me back to is is you know, that that makes Christ more human and that makes Christ more relatable to people, uh, uh-huh. and in that regard, you know that's that's something that was on my mind while watching this movie last night. And uh, I think what what they've done with this movie, whether they purposely did it or not, is to make the idea of the Messiah more relatable and more human. Um, through the portrayal of a guy who is accidentally thought of as the Messiah, and it's trying to do his yeah. best, even though he hates that. He... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Is there anything particularly, I suppose, on that line um, that uh, uh-huh. that the movie strikes you with? I mean, I I just adore the the crucifixion yeah. scene. I, I think for pretty much the same reasons that you said. Uh, it's it's odd in that interview, uh, John Cleese and Michael Palin really make a point that they haven't made a movie about Jesus, right. and they they keep trying to cut off uh, Muggeridge and the Bishop when they suggest that they have. But I I, th- I think, like you're saying, that 
the you know the the incarnation is about God becoming man, and the ultimate proof of that manhood is you know dying. Dying is a very human thing to do. It's not a divine thing right. to do. Um, so to to have you know in, instead of the you know the passion and the crucifixion of Jesus, you have the the passion and crucifixion of all the other people who are having a very Christ-like reaction to their death, you know, that like always look on the bright side right. of life, um, you know, is, is, is a very, you know, in the face of death. Uh, oh, death. It's a triumph. Oh, death, where is your victory? That's uh, yeah, biblical. Cheer up, Brian. You know what they say? Some things in life are bad. They can really make you mad. Other things just make you swear and curse. When you're chewing on life's gristle, don't grumble, give a whistle. And this'll help things turn out for the best. Hey. Always look on the bright side of life. Always look on the light side of life. It's not necessarily an embracement of death, but it is a uh, embracement of the inevitability of it. I think uh, mm. you can't, you're not going to escape it. So, might as well, <laughs> might yeah. as well get what you get out of it. I guess. <laughs> um, <laughs> I really, you know, I've talked about this movie on a podcast before even it was many years ago uh, but for my main podcast lost in criterion uh this is in the criterion collection uh and i think i watched that interview for part of that too uh but uh it's it's weird having having done lost in criterion for oh we're into year eight now um it's uh a lot of the earlier movies even even the first two years of it or more uh I would love to re-record those episodes because the way I talked about movies back then, now (laughs) that I've got a floor for understanding more movies, having watched nearly 400 (laughs) just for that project, um, it's, uh, you know, I, I would probably be horrified to go back and listen to the Life of Brian episode, really. Uh, But I'm sure... I, I honestly, I don't remember anything we said about that movie. I do not remember anything we said about Life of Brian on that episode. Uh, I sh- probably should have re-listened to it before we did this, just to <laughs> have an idea of what I used to think. Uh, but uh, it's one thing I really admire about the movie, and and you had said, you know, Cleese and Palin, uh, Palin claiming they're not making a movie about Jesus is also disingenuous, right? Um, because what you're doing, and, and I can't remember if it's Muggeridge or, or the bishop who says this, but you know this movie wouldn't exist without Jesus uh, as a cultural figure. So, yes, you are making a movie because of Jesus, and you're making a movie that is at least partially about Jesus in being about religion, but what they mean by religion is Christianity, right? And so many, something to 
keep in mind so many times when when we talk about religion in general what we mean is our personal interaction with religion and by and large in western society at least that means we're talking about christianity um there's actually a there's a twitter feed i started following recently called just say christian uh which which recounts times when people were talking about uh news articles talking about religion uh when they mean just christian society i think it's run by a jewish individual uh who's a bit annoyed <laughs> about that yeah uh can't blame him but this is a movie about jesus and it's a movie that features jesus uh and brian is a guy who wants to see change in the world and is just trying his best and uh he falls in with some revolutionaries, but he could have just as easily fallen in with Jesus. And whenever he's trying to say something profound, he is parroting something he clearly heard the character of Jesus within this film universe say, uh, and not remembering it well or misheard it to begin with, or that phenomenal opening scene of the uh, of the Sermon on the Mount <laughs> with uh, with them getting farther and farther away and not being able to hear. Um, what what strikes you about this movie beyond the crucifixion scene? Uh, because that's just the end, and obviously there's a lot of buildup. So to to like this movie, do you yeah. connect with that humanity? Do you is that something you saw in the movie, or just something I'm I'm seeing in the movie? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's, it's something along those lines. I, I think part of what brought me back into Christianity is um, yeah. reading secular scholars talk about the Bible. And one of the, the first things that they kind of do is try to draw a line in the sand between what they're interested in, which is the kind of historical man, Jesus of Nazareth, leaving the question of his divinity at the door um, and separating that from the Jesus that you hear about in, on Sunday in the sermon. And it's kind of a similar thing to what this movie does. And kind of, it still has Jesus. They're not trying to make a movie where Jesus is this kind of bumbling buffoon. But um, they're interested in what it would be like, you know, leaving divinity at the door to be a person in that time and place. And what those people would have to go through and what you know, effect that would have on someone. And I, I think that it's interesting because you can, you can tell that they, they've they done a lot of research and they said that they've done a lot of research in the interview. Um, but there, Brian kind of matches up a lot with one of the more popular theories on kind of who Jesus was as a, as a human person, um, kind of the revolutionary zealot that you see in like Reza Aslan's book, and a couple other scholars. It's not necessarily the most popular one in scholarship, but it's interesting to see that kind of, you know, that that different picture of Jesus that you read from from people like uh, Reza Aslan or someone else like that, um, instead of you know the Passion of the Christ Jesus. <laughs> that's more out of kind of uh, you know the the saints having revelations yeah. in the medieval period yeah um you you left the church pretty hard you said and and uh -huh. you, you eventually yeah. swung back around to episcopalian and uh 
I find I find the journey uh, Roman Catholic to Episcopalian is 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 a pretty common for a vi- variety of of usually social yeah. reasons to be to be fair. Um, I know a lot of a lot of people who uh, would have been priests in a Roman Catholic faith, uh, except for say their sexuality, so they they became uh, Episcopalian priests instead. Um, in fact, our first, our very first episode with uh, with my dear friend brother Thanasi, uh, he was a Greek Orthodox monk for many years until he was sort of forced off peripherally to the fact that he was gay, uh, and is now part of a monkish order within the Episcopalian Church. Um, that I was surprised to learn exists. <laughs> yes, yeah. indeed. yes, indeed. There's a couple of them. Pretty small. Um, they exist. <laughs> Yeah, the the other way is is common enough too of people wanting more more uh, high church structure, uh, leaving the Episcopalian Church for the Roman Catholics. Uh, I'm sure the uh, the number of Roman Catholics becoming Episcopalian and Episcopalians becoming Roman Catholics in the year probably probably is a wash, um, <laughs> just moving back and forth. Probably, yeah. Uh, but uh, how uh, how did you end up? With the Episcopalian Church, well, um, so I, w- I was on a community service trip down in Arkansas. Uh, we were participating in Habitat for Humanity, which is you know a great charity. If you haven't heard of it, uh, they do a lot of great work. But uh, we were staying in the rec room of an Episcopalian church, and we kind of agreed as as payment for letting us stay there for the priest to kind of uh, preach to us and. He, he, he rolled in one of those kind of like high school, uh, television sets on the, the big yeah. rollers, um, which is not something that I was expecting. And he played a clip from Monty Python's Holy Grail. The one about, um, I think it's Michael Palin, his character. He's, um, kind of, uh, you know, jeering, uh, King Arthur as he walks by because, um, monarchy is a silly idea. <laughs> And he's he's trying to talk about how like all the people should have like you know rights and things, and he connected that back to um, the Lord's Prayer, talking about the historical situation in Judea at the time, them living under Roman imperial rule. Um, you know, the, thy kingdom come was mm-hmm. kind of seen as a threat to power, and you see a lot of that throughout the Beatitudes as well. But kind of that picture of of Jesus as as a as a human person in a very um, right you know all too common political environment um, made me kind of re- reconsider that because you know I, I I do love Catholicism I, I love the aesthetics if, if nothing else but there's there's kind of you you're removed from that story a lot it's just something from on high that. You don't really think critically about or it's it's almost seems blasphemous to think too critically about and having this priest talk really honestly about this kind of right. vulgar Monty Python clip um, while talking about Jesus kind of at least let me know about Episcopalianism and, and how its attitude was a little right. more, more and, palatable to me and, and of then, course talking about Jesus yeah. as, a, as a political person um, reflecting the yeah. uh, the scholars you read uh, while in 
Oh, you read them after then. Well, I read them after. I think that was probably the the Get impetus for me, like kind of something to pull you back in. I would say yeah. if the the amount of stress I would feel internally, uh, having agreed to stay at this place on the condition that I would be pre- preached at, compared to the relief I'd have when when the priest rolled out a television and put on Monty Python. <laughs> Just, just a real roller coaster of emotion yeah. there. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Especially in, I think it was the first time I was in the South for any real length of time as well. So I no idea what to expect. What I had coming, so yeah. it's a relief. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's very, very interesting. Um, what? Uh, how old were you during that when that happened? I was yeah. probably 19 or 20, right, uh, sophomore, yeah. junior year of college. Interesting. Um, was it with a college group? What, what sort of, yeah. Yeah. One of those uh, uh, alternate spring break deals where. And the yeah. alternate, uh, alternative spring break that uh, had you rooming in an Episcopalian <laughs> gym. Um, yep. Yeah. Interesting. <laughs> exactly. Very interesting. So yeah, we're watching Life of Brian, but your your first incursion into the Episcopal Church was uh, heavily involved with with Holy Grail. So uh, Monty Python is uh, is yeah. part of your part of your faith journey pretty pretty deeply. It seems like <laughs> there you go. Yeah, for better there or worse. <laughs> um, it's very interesting. And you say it was it was sort of after that that you got into the secular Bible criticism. Um, you mentioned uh, mm-hmm. Res Aslan, uh, Bart Ehrman. Um, I'm not really familiar with Raymond Brown or Dale Martin's uh, work that you mentioned mm-hmm. as well pre-show. Um, Ehrman. Ehrman I know primarily from... Uh, I've not read any of his books, uh, but I do remember his interviews on the Colbert Report uh, where... Uh, mm-hmm. Colbert was especially dismissive. I rewatched those <laughs> this week. <laughs> like I, I understand that that Colbert fundamentally disagrees with Ehrman, but he wasn't he wasn't like trying to argue with him. Like, there's that famous, rather famous moment of Colbert. I can't remember who it was who it was with, uh, but it's someone someone trying to ex- secularly explain the Christian idea of salvation and uh, and 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 hell and. Stephen uh, lays down his his understanding uh, that you know you you choose hell for yourself uh, and explains that theology and the guy says oh you you must have paid attention in Sunday Sunday school Stephen Colbert says I taught Sunday school but that's not that's not the relationship he has with with Bart Ehrman in those interviews. He's much more antagonistic. He's much, he's not, he's not trying to, have you seen them? Are you familiar with them? Yeah, yeah. I've, I've seen them. I mean, it's uh, been a while. It's, it's, it's interesting because, because Bart, I think especially gets a kind of outsized reputation among the faithful who ha- who aren't really familiar with him. I think mostly because the, the title is, yeah. the titles of his books are just <laughs> awful. Um, and that's not really his fault. It's like the publisher choosing to yeah. name his books like misquoting Jesus or 
did Jesus exist when, like, if you read that book, the <laughs> yeah. answer is yes. So I don't know why it's presented that way. So Presumably a much longer book than just the word yes, too. So uh, Yeah. But, uh, yeah. I mean, it might as well. Yeah. Uh, Ehrman, I'm also um, familiar with, uh, with his debates with N.T. Wright, who is uh, sort uh-huh. of his uh, theological opposite uh, but both uh, both New Testament scholars, well-known New Testament scholars, um, and uh, and right Wright's response to Herman is basically, yeah, you're you're right about the contradictions, and you're right about us not having the original first sources, but the fact that we have thousands of copies that all generally agree with each other is also pretty dang good. <laughs> so, um, yeah, but yeah, no, I like, I think. Ehrman does good things, and I think I think people who who claim to believe in the Bible and, and follow the Bible need to engage with Ehrman, um, because for for much of the, the same reason of the message of this movie, it's something you, know, you need to be critical about what you're being taught and what you're what you're being told to believe, and you can't just accept that on its face, mm-hmm. and you you need to think about what's happening. Um, I do think they're being a little disingenuous in the interview to claim that, that, uh, that is the sole message, you know, to have your Messiah character say, Hey, think for yourself is a good message, but Uh it's not divorced from the rest of the context of the film. Like it is, it is an yeah. anti-Christian film to an extent. Um, I think it's anti-organized religion and organized politics to a much greater extent. Uh, and it's mm-hmm. uh, the uh, the targets of its ridicule are leftist politics <laughs> in a lot of ways, too. Uh, yeah. What... The what did Rome ever do with us bit, or ever do for us bit. Yeah, all right, I'll grant you the aqueduct and sanitation are two things the Romans have done. And the roads. Well, yeah, obviously the roads. I mean, the roads go without saying, don't they? But apart from the sanitation, the aqueduct and the roads... Irrigation. Medicine. Yeah. Education. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, all right, fair enough. And the wine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah that's something yeah. we've really misrated. The Romans left. <laughs> Public baths. And it's safe to walk in the streets at night now, Reg. Yeah, they certainly know how to keep order. Let's face it, the only ones who could in a place like this. Really, really hit me in uh, in a much more negative space, I think, this time watching it. Uh, maybe it's just where I've, where I've moved politically since the last time I've watched this movie, and certainly since the first time I've watched this movie. But uh, particularly coming from two 20th century British people, or a group of 20th century British people, this uh, solid argument for imperialism uh, is a little disheartening. <laughs> but yeah. uh, but also given uh, given the current politics of Britain and uh, and some of the pythons, what they've been saying recently, and I think of Terry Gilliam's uh, recent. Uh, interviews too yeah that interview uh, was so i guess bad. i can't be terribly surprised that that was the the politics at the time but no uh, 
yeah, that Terry Gilliam interview was was uh, infuriatingly it was rough. rough. It was yes. hard to read. Um, <laughs> uh, what uh, <laughs> do you take anything politically from this film? Do you? I mean, I don't know. It's it's hard yeah. to take its politics seriously because it's just it's just firing off at the wrong targets so often. It, it its main critiques of yeah. Rome are that people talk funny, right. which is which isn't even really the people you know, thing. It's, from Rome have speech impediments. So that's yeah, hilarious. Yeah, I guess that's yeah. the that's their biggest fault. Um, and it's all of its arguments, like politically, are are you know these Marxist revolutionaries are incompetent, which is like, one, it's, it's, it's a weird anachronism. Like M Michael Palin brings this up in the interview, how he's like, this isn't this is maybe the weirdest thing he says, but it, this isn't a movie about religion at all. It's actually just about what a bunch of British people and what they would do right. if you were to place them back in that period of <laughs> that's time. Not what like, that's definitely not what this movie is about. That's definitely not what this movie is about. Sometimes what this movie is trying to be, but it's just not... It doesn't work when it's doing that, and the parts that people like about this movie are definitely yeah. not. Uh, one one frequent refrain in Cinema Credo ep uh, episodes is, you know, the uh, the artists who created these films rarely understand them in the way we're talking about them. So, uh, but uh, but sometimes <laughs> you get the creator of a thing who says something that is so disconnected from from what you view the piece to be about. <laughs> Uh, that it's uh, it's almost uh, mind-breakingly <laughs> different. Yeah, this is not a movie about yeah. just what a bunch of British people would react to living under under <laughs> Roman rule in in first-century Judea. That doesn't even you know that doesn't make sense as what you're, you're trying to say. So yeah, right. I don't even right. know what that movie would be. <laughs> and I don't know. I don't know that it would be anything anyone would ever want to see. So. Um, no, it doesn't. Happen. They were in the interview talking about there being a fourth, a fourth Python film on the way. So maybe that's uh, what they were planning, and then it uh, evaporated for good reason. <laughs> it just fell apart. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's uh, obviously the the infighting of leftist groups and uh, and the fact that they can't get anything done because of the infighting. That's, I suppose, a valid criticism, but it's just very. Very odd the way it plays out in this movie that isn't i don't I can't find a reading of it right now that isn't right wing reactionary response to that, and that mm -hmm. feels very bad to me right now, <laughs> so yeah, the most charitable I can say is that you have all these infighting Jewish groups, which usually are they're kind of stacked on how old the things that they recognize as scripture are between mm -hmm. the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Zealots, what have you. Um, but if that's what they were trying to represent there, like they, they don't really see, <laughs> they're, they're using the fact that there was a bunch of infighting groups that are mentioned in the Bible as a way to poke fun at leftist revolutionaries and their infighting, which is just a weird... Right, right. There, it, are, the parallels there aren't really, really any parallels there, besides the fact that they were there was infighting, right? The, uh, the arguments yeah. actually going on were about religious authority. Uh, and I, I 
Uh-huh. I don't mean that negatively. It was it was about who who and in what way and from what arguing from what tradition they could claim their religious authority. Uh, and Judaism went through a lot of changes at the time of of Jesus uh-huh. um, and uh, reading Jesus as a rabbi. Uh, rabbi Danya Ruttenberg actually had a had a thread on uh, Twitter recently um, where she talked about Jesus being uh, in line with um, a Pharisee who is trying to rectify to some of the Sadducees more salient points um, and understanding Jesus in the uh, religious political time that he found himself in is is an interesting uh, alternative uh, as well you know broader context um Mm -hmm. so so yeah just writing writing off all these various groups and then making all those groups political you know they were politics and religion uh in judea at the time were were heavily tied to one another right and and in many ways are today yeah um and rome was hardly a secularist government either rome had its own uh religious structures um that Jesus threatened, you know, uh, and that's mm-hmm. one of the more salient points they make in their argument with the bishop and uh, is is that he was put to death for blasphemy. He was put to death for, uh, you know, for challenging, you know, it was a, it was a state execution. Um, he broke yeah. some law uh, <laughs> and was convicted for it. Uh, yeah. He wasn't just murdered offhandedly uh but i also think another salient point they they make on the crucifixion is that it was something that happened to a lot of people and there's no more human way to die in first century judea than yeah than crucifixion at the hands of the state um yeah so they go back and forth in that interview um <laughs> Sometimes they're saying some pretty stupid yeah, things. I think, and sometimes they're ma- they're making some very good points. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, was that? The, am I misremembering? Was that the interview where it was later revealed that uh, that the other guys hadn't actually seen the first five minutes of the movie? Uh, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. I feel honestly. I feel like there was some story about them walking. <laughs> but, uh, someone someone at least Cleese ended up debating about the movie who were claiming that it was just making fun of Jesus, hadn't seen the Sermon on the Mount portion of it at all. Uh, and maybe maybe that is misremembering some dream I had sometime. But, uh, <laughs> I mean, they seem, they seem so focused on the, the ending of the movie right. that it almost seems like they right. just walked in the last 15 right. minutes. Right. <laughs> Which is, yeah. Yeah. The... Uh, the movie is, I think, at its best when it is uh, showing the crowds responding to Brian and Brian trying to dissuade them from following him. Um, yep. And that, that group response and the splintering within that group response of, you know, the the one group uh, grabs onto his sandal and the other group, uh, his gourd. And then uh, you've got, uh, when they split up, you've got sp- Spike Milligan playing a, a cameo, just saying, "Well, I think," and then everyone walks away. 
<laughs> and then everyone walks away. Yeah. Yeah. Might be my favorite yes. point Just in that whole scene. Be. Uh, but yeah, the uh, the response is in chorus all the time to 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 his talking and to particularly uh, the crowds lined up outside of his house when his mom shows up. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, there's there's a lot of great going on in this movie. There is unfortunately just a lot of not so great going on with it too. Yeah. Um. From from the time you uh, went on that Habitat for Humanity trip, um, and that sort of started your, mm-hmm. your journey back into Christianity. Uh, how long was that journey then? I mean, I mean, not not necessarily even to suggest your you finished that journey, certainly, but uh, but to say how long yeah. from from that interaction with the Episcopal Church until maybe you started uh, regularly interacting with the church again. It was probably yeah. around five years. It was like a I, you know a slow, gradual shift. I think that part of it was just being more familiar with the you know i think john cleese makes a really good argument in that interview of that when he was doing the research for the movie he just he realized how interesting church history and the gospels can be just when you read them as any other book and that the the fact that his priest never kind of presented that he felt he feels like he's been kind of robbed or given i think what he says like a 10th rate version and, and, you know, the more I got into reading the Church Fathers, especially Augustine, and the more I got into reading the Gospels, um, I realized that, you know, th- there's just so much there, even if you divorce it from kind of an errantist point of view. Like, they're just extremely interesting, even if you don't right. take everything that right. they say at face And that's, uh, that's one... Ehrman's critique of contradictions within the... Uh, the text is one about comparing different versions of the same text. But but the more general critique of contradictions oh. within the Bible will often point out to contradictions between the different Gospels. Uh, and, uh, and one thing oh. uh, Brother Thanasi told me once that really, really clicked something in my head uh, is that the reason there are four Gospels that are all clearly have different views of the events that happened uh, is because the early church fathers didn't want to say, well, one of these is definitively true. So they spread it out more. Yeah. And if if the idea that there were four versions of this story that were all slightly different and sometimes majorly different in the case of, of how John orders events, especially, if, if that mm-hmm. had been... Yeah more if that were more uh embraced if if recognizing that uh contradiction embracing that contradiction living within that contradiction were more embraced i think uh i think it's a a healthier view of uh of religion too of christianity i feel i feel like that's one that that judaism kind of inhabits very well of you know this is right, the start of a conversation, right. not the end of the conversation. You know, we have this oral tradition on top of this that's just as important as, you know, what was written down. And Christianity, in certain circles at least, 
tries to reconcile everything into a mush where you lose that flavor of I think Mark especially gets left out a lot in, in sermons and whatnot because almost everything in Mark is in Luke or in right, Matthew. Right. But if you read what Mark presents and like not kind of imagine in the things from Matthew and Luke, it's such an interesting gospel. It kind of presents about as close to Jesus to Brian as you can have. <laughs> right. Like Jesus seems very shocked by everything right. that's happening. Right. He doesn't really seem to understand that he's the son of God until his baptism. Right. And then he seems very nonplussed by it. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. It's, um, you know, I, Jesus, um, I'm sorry. The last temptation of Christ, I think is, is more heavily indebted to, uh, yeah. to that view of Mark too. Um, but, but yeah, um, no, about it being a conversation, you know, you're, you're, I think you're right to say that, that Judaism is, is, uh, predominantly more open to that idea. Um, you know, Judaism is, uh, about wrestling with God, uh, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and and you know they they take that back to to the Hebrew scriptures and and uh, but uh, Marcus Borg I I don't know if you're familiar with him at all uh, but he had a book um, called Reading the Bible Again for the First Time that uh, sort of makes mm-hmm. that same argument uh, in Christianity uh, if, uh, if I remember correctly the uh, the subtitle of that book is uh, "Taking the Bible Seriously but Not Literally," uh, which yeah. I uh, which I enjoyed. Uh, but yeah, he talks about it being invited into a conversation and viewing viewing the contradictory ideas uh, within the Bible that you know this sort of interpretations that can tend more toward authoritarianism and more toward. Uh, a, a more liberal, um, libertarian even, um, reading, mm-hmm. uh, that, uh, that those conversations are, or that those are conversations being had by the authors too, right? Yeah. That they are, they are yeah. people with conflicting views actually in conversation in the book you're reading that, that, that viewing, viewing the scriptures as one whole book leading to one, uh, thesis uh, is is perhaps mm. the wrong way to look at them to begin with, uh, and that is, in my experience, growing up in a literalist fundamentalist uh, background, um, that is not a way that anyone ever suggested reading the Bible to me. <laughs> no, uh, but uh, but you came about that in a different way. I don't, I don't suppose the. Uh, the Catholicism you grew up in was really a literalist Catholicism either. And, no, I mean, obviously yeah. with the priest yeah. I had, it was, you know, but it, it's still, Catholicism's weird because it doesn't really have the kind of literalist baggage that some Calvinist or other yeah. kind of fundamentalist groups can have, but um, it really does place, you know, a, a huge amount of reverence on everything even like tertially related to the gospels and the Bible. And that doesn't necessarily include the words in the text as much as it would under fundamentalism, but you do kind of have that barrier to um, 
kind of examine things yeah. sometimes. And it depends on, you know, the flavors. Right. Obviously, right. like the Jesuits are, you know, would probably have a good conversation with over tea with Bart Ehrman. But, yeah. you know, there are different flavors. Yeah. That's... um. You wouldn't have heard this yet, obviously, because uh, because of the, our recording schedule. But the uh, the previous episode of uh, of this podcast, we talked to, or I talked to, uh, uh, Dr. Catherine Schmidt, who is a uh, lifelong Catholic uh, professor of theology at Malloy College on Long Island. Oh, cool! Um, about uh, the film Calvary uh, from a few years back, um, and we we talked fairly extensively then about. Uh, Catholicism and uh, respect for hierarchies, I think, is is yeah. a good way to to yeah, that's a good to way put to what <laughs> and to to put what you're saying and to put our our talk in the shortest way possible. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, but uh, it's interesting though, uh, because you know my background is uh, and and a lot of what what would get re- labeled as Protestant fundamentalism, at least in the West uh, nowadays, is uh, in a particular idea strain called dispensationalism. Yeah. Uh, and that in particular uh, is a lot of hoops, mental hoops to jump through. I, I joked once that uh, 90% of theology is to take the, the very literal don't be an asshole words on the page and determine how you can still be an asshole and it be okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Um, and dispensationalism does does a number on that idea by, by basically rejecting Jesus' actual teachings as for a different age. And now that we live in the mm-hmm. age of grace and the age of the resurrection... Uh, we don't need to necessarily worry about the Sermon on the Mount so much. Uh, yeah. Which is... Really cynical, I think. <laughs> is Yeah, I mean... I know that, like, from ever having been in a dispensationalist background, it's hard for right, me to right. get a feel for it. But, like, just like outside looking in... It, it's hard for me to understand what the hope is yeah. from that perspective because I've always, you know, there, we don't, Catholicism never right. really even talks about are you pre-millennial, right, are you right. post-millennial. But. The, the, hope, the hope breaks down and, the, and the, the theological growing of this movement is, is solely a hope for a heaven that is wholly disconnected from earth, really. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we've already talked about you know, "Thy kingdom come," the, the Lord's prayer. Yeah, know, on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, that's that's something that's uh, the idea. You know, Revelation ends with an image of of heaven and earth coming together, and heaven co- coming to earth a mm-hmm. a new incarnation in a way. Um, and the predominant fundamentalist dispensationalist idea is of heaven as a separate place that you go to and a, a afterlife reward that you go to. Um, and that feeds a lot of terrible politics in that it means mm-hmm. that we don't really have to care about 
the earth or humanity as an entity in a whole. Uh, it is a very individualized belief that, uh, you know, Jesus is going to come back and there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth and, and everybody's going, you're either going to heaven or hell. So it doesn't really matter if the earth all falls apart because, yeah, yeah. Uh, cause we don't have to, it's going to burn up anyway. So <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. Just accelerating the process. Yeah. yeah. Accelerationists. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, that's, you know, where I came from and, and I certainly came from a background that, uh, that would have condemned this movie when it came out. I'm, I'm certain, uh, Though, uh, though a very interesting thing about my particular denomination is that there's not really a lot of, well, there's not really a lot of, uh, I suppose thought leaders is the easiest way to put it. There's not, there's not a lot of scholarship within my particular denomination. And because of that, there's not necessarily a lot of cultural engagement within my particular denomination. Um, obviously more broadly, the fundamentalism that, that it, is part of has has yeah. that but but particularly there is very little of that in my experience which is kind of odd too when you come from a mm -hmm. denomination that like a lot of protestants uh fundamentalist protestants particular um believe is the only true christianity um <laughs> that that the only 90% of your ideology is coming from someone who is not part of your denomination is, is a little mm. odd. It's a little yeah. odd. Yeah. Uh, I mean, growing up Catholics weren't Christians and I don't think I even knew that the Orthodox church existed until I was like 20. So <laughs> yeah. it's, it's a very different, well, I mean, that's not true. Obviously world history covered that too in seventh grade. Yeah. So. But you must think about like, as yeah. a, solely russian right <laughs> and solely like old right. thousand year old russian and uh not yeah. a thing that exists it's anymore. like we had the schism and then they right. went away right. <laughs> okay. and even as even as evangelicism talks about uh soviet russia uh persecuting the church they don't talk about it in terms of oh well they were the orthodox church is just generic christian getting persecuted so that they can claim it was them uh <laughs> yeah. but yeah um yeah it's it's interesting in this movie how how sort of little for something that's trying to argue about Christianity there's very little organized religion within this film it is it is yeah the complaints are about the organized religion of today which makes sense obviously you know you're not they python certainly don't want to make a movie about um, the intricacies of organized religion uh, that that Jesus is coming out of, but there's no there's no synagogue, there's no uh -huh. there's not even any Herod in this movie. Like that, no, I don't know if they were <laughs> if they were especially concerned about even appearing anti-Semitic. Um, that would make sense. I mean, I can I can see that, and and maybe that is what it was but there's very little Jewishness in this film. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah, it's, it, it's, it's interesting that in that regard, like it, 
Like it, it just is almost in every single sense of the term. It's a completely secular Jesus movie. And I don't know, I, I personally find that stuff super interesting. I, I find the debates that were going around that around that time right. like really interesting. But I don't like I, I think Michael or John says this in the interview that they didn't want to get too specialist. They didn't want to like spend four years researching <laughs> of course, this of and course. have a, a joke that would only land up with them. Bible scholars, right, but right. it is a little disappointing in hindsight, but I don't know. Yeah, I just... <laughs> it's a Monty Python movie. So on the one hand, yeah. it's a silly thing, right? And and what... To read anything too deeply into it, it's, you know, they can always make the argument that it's, well, it's just comedy, and it's, it's just oh. silly. But they are at some points, trying to make points, right? <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, it's only a movie with a message, and that message is not, not always right. great. And yeah. It's not always clear what what they want that message to be. And, uh, and oftentimes, when it is clear, it is not a great message. So. <laughs> yeah. But, but it's still a fun movie. It's a good movie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And like, I think I think the things that that get to me the most are kind of that what John tries to boil the movie down to of you know this is just the point of this movie is for you to think for yourself, mm-hmm. and I think that when it's when it's on that point it's really good. Right. The the speech that Brian gives to the crowd and they're all like chanting in unison, yes, yes, we must think for ourselves. Right. And and the jokes about the logistics of like, how much can we trust the Sermon on the Mount when it was thirty years before and you're probably standing in the back seats. Right, right. But I mean, that in and of itself isn't much of a it's not much to go on, right? Like you need a, at least a starting point after you say, okay, I'm going to think for myself. It's like where where do I go? Like what should I examine? What right. Uh, you know, preconceptions should I challenge? And almost all the preconceptions that this movie challenges are kind of banal, and the ones that it accepts face value are, uh, you know, things that probably should be right, challenged. Right. So it's a little in conflict with itself yeah. sometimes. Right. We can't. No one is a blank slate, right? We can't. No. Uh, we can't just start over and relitigate 4,000 years of philosophy uh, for ourselves every time. Yeah. You know, so you've got a, you've got a, everybody's got their own little sieve and you figure out what you want to catch and what you want to fall through. Um, and that's right. That's thinking individually, but you're still influenced, you know, and you still, there are ideas out there that are going to affect how you form what you catch, right? Uh-huh. So, so yeah, the message of thinking for yourself is good, uh, but it's also it's also accurate. Uh, in uh, you know, there's the joke of everyone saying, "Yes, we'll think for ourselves in unison," yeah. but there's also an accuracy in in that too. I mean, here we are watching this movie, and John wants us to all repeat right, that, right? Like, right. I don't know, <laughs> you know, at some level, right? And uh, you know, there is 
there are certain assumptions being made when someone like John Cleese says, think for yourself. In, yeah. And he is, he is maybe not telling you a specific thing to do, but he is telling you to do a thing within a range. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, as, as they say in the interview, uh, within that range isn't necessarily reject your religion. Uh, yeah, but it is, it is still, I don't know. It's still, I think it's still steeped in at least a Western view of philosophy, if not a Western view of theology. Mm-hmm. That, that, yeah. I mean, the, the people that Cleese name drops in that interview kind of play his hand right. raised Karl Popper, Bertrand right. Russell. Right. So like, right. It's a little bit on the, the more secular <laughs> right. side. And I, don't, I mean, and a particular type of secularism too. And a very particular right. type of, right. yeah. Like the, the kind of proto, um, Christopher Hitchens right, in, a, right, in a lot of ways. Right. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> That's, I was, I was happy when I started the sentence on your, on your little survey, about uh about secular uh secular bible criticism uh i was very happy that hitchens and sam harris weren't on that list (laughs) we're not on that list Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh (laughs) well that's i no i don't want to dog on them at all that's that's fine no i mean i I do on on some level but i mean (laughs) okay well it's not not necessarily their their Bible criticism that kind of gets my butt. No, away. no, no. It's uh, <laughs> the reason right, in there. right. The reason to dismiss <laughs> yeah. Sam Harris are manifold and uh, are are complained about by my atheist friends just as much as, as yeah. my religious friends. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, his misogyny, his anti-Islam rhetoric that uh, very much aligns with. Uh, the yep. worst of yeah yep. yeah one other thing uh, about the politics of this movie uh, Loretta why don't you shut up about women Stan you're putting us off women have a perfect right to play a part in our movement Reg why are you always on about women Stan I want to be one what I want to be a woman from now on I want you all to call me Loretta what? It's my right as a man. Well, why do you want to be Loretta, Stan? I want to have babies. You want to have babies? It's every man's right to have babies if he wants them. But you can't have babies! Don't you oppress me. I'm not oppressing you, Stan. You haven't got a womb. Where's the fetus going to gestate? You're going to keep it in a box? Here, I've got an idea. Suppose you agree that he can't actually have babies, not having a womb, which is nobody's fault, not even the Romans, but that he can have the right to have babies. Good idea, Judith. We shall fight the oppressors for your right to have babies, brother. Sister, sorry. On the one hand, it, uh, well, uh, Loretta's complicated, I think. Uh, yeah. <laughs> even, even from a, uh, from a stance of politics today. The red is complicated. Um, mm-hmm. But I think one thing that really 
got me there that maybe even given everything else we've talked about uh, ideologically with the movie, maybe even the Pythons didn't mean to do. Uh, but I think it's, but maybe with Reg, especially as a character, yeah. there's this uh, position of the leftists, the Marxist revolutionaries, not willing to go farther. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's that's a good critique in this movie too, but I don't know that it's it's, it's one that like accidentally right. makes. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I think it is one that it accidentally makes. Uh, but of people trying to hold on to, yeah. And I I go back and forth on whether it accidentally makes it because of how Reg is introduced with with his mm-hmm. immediate dismissal of the Sermon on the Mount. And it's like, well, the yeah. Have you ever yeah. considered that the meek are the problem? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that he he do want he 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 wants to go farther, but he wants to go. He's a tanky. He wants to go farther in in a violent sort of of way. Yeah, not necessarily in a right. Not sort. necessarily even in a uh, uh, useful <laughs> way. <laughs> Just yeah. And you know, of course, that's the violent infighting of the groups is is something that is uh, frequently commented on within the movie. Um, but there's such, uh, Judith in that conversation is, is so graceful to Loretta and then Reg is just completely dismissive of it. And because, because they do have someone's words, someone saying, all right, no, you're, that's valid. Uh, yeah, that's. You know, where I feel more conflicted about it. It'd be easy it'd be easy to dismiss it wholesale. Because obviously yeah. obviously Idol's characterization there is meant to be, oh, it's funny. It's it's a yeah. man who wants to be a woman, he wants to have a baby. It's just patently absurd. But they give those lines to the, Judith the per- about it. And and there's a sincerity yeah. in the way Idol portrays it that that feels okay in, in some ways. Yeah, it's it, it's a it's a it's a razor like edge scene. Yeah. I mean, like I I do think yeah, I, Idol plays it about as well as you could with that script. The fact that they do have Judith there, who throughout the movie is kind of the voice of reason, yeah. and the fact that most of the worst things that are said are said by Red, she was kind of supposed to be this laughable kind of stick in right. the mud. Um, almost saves it, but like they. Part of it, I think, is just it's really hard for Monty Python, of all people, of all groups, to try to make a like, to try to do that scene well when they just all the time have themselves dressing up in right, clothing. Right, 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 right. Where it's a it's hard for them to yeah. turn around. <laughs> right, it's frequently just a gag, and and cross dressing yep. is one of their most famous gags, the lumberjack song, um, where it's just. That is the silliness of it. Um, yeah, so you're right. It's Idol does sort of the best he can, and it's maybe surprising that he does the best he can. Um, yeah. Judith is interesting, though, as the voice of reason, uh, sort of until she becomes a true believer at the end, it seems like, almost. Yeah, I, I almost seem like there's like a scene that was cut or something. Like It's a funny gag that... 
like everyone comes like his mother yeah. everyone just like oh i guess you're gonna do go through with this and no one else will. right but she does like the previous scene is her screaming at reg that they need to do something now and they need to go out there and just get rid of him she like calls for his release <laughs> and then she goes and without even letting him speak just like oh you're so awesome thank you for doing this you're, you're our hero Goodbye. right right yeah it's just sort of a way to i don't even know you know why why like they have her show up so that she doesn't just disappear so that's good but also she doesn't really do anything in line with the rest of her characterization which is yeah yeah another issue of the film but you know it's i don't know maybe if it were funnier it would be <laughs> more more yeah, forgivable I, I guess, yeah that's the, the thing it's like they already have like three iterations on that yeah. joke and that one doesn't do anything right. special so right. right so uh but the end always look on the bright side of life yeah yeah i uh <laughs> i love that song um it's uh I also love the the Eric Idle's character through the crucifixion scene. <laughs> Just, it's like, oh no, they were gonna they told me I get my my own island and it's like, no, no, I was just joking. I'm it's crucifixion. <laughs> yeah. I I do like I think that nails it home more than the ending shot of just countless crucifixions yeah. at once, but the the <laughs> The Roman guard who's just next crucifixion. Yes. Good. Just like it really was that commonplace. Right. And I feel like that is such a good way to nail it home of just this kind of boring bureaucratic right. task. Right. And, you know, we've got in the uh, the television show, the, the bishop uh, complaining, you know, it wasn't. That that Jesus' own crucifixion was unique, and theologically, yes, he he makes a mm-hmm. valid enough point. Um, but the the Python's response to that is is also theologically valid. He's like, no, it wasn't unique, and that's what was great about it. That was what was mm-hmm. was uh, profound about it was that this God would die in such a normal way. Um, and the fact that it was normal and it was still horrific, but it was normal. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. What does, what does Cleese say was his problem with that scene? I think it was Cleese. He, he... Um, I think he says that he didn't, he didn't want anyone registering pain through it. Cause he, he wanted it to be completely about death yeah. and he didn't want to, he says that there's a couple times that some of the actors and the extras were like wincing and he thought that that kind of, underplayed the point yeah yeah um actually to that uh they make reference to the to the rossellini film um yeah but uh on on italian crucifixion films have you ever seen uh pasolini's no i've never seen pasolini's um that was actually the one that um Bart Ehrman, when he was asked, like, what is the best yeah. movie about Jesus? And he just said that without thinking. It's interesting. I, I ran across a, a fairly conservative list of the best best uh, 
Jesus movies that dismissed the Last Temptation out of hand completely, mm-hmm. but praised Pasolini's, I think it's um, the Gospel according to Matthew, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. Um, even though it contained the, the little paragraph review contained a line that said, of course, he is a, a, a gay Marxist uh, <laughs> revolutionary. <laughs> but, but besides that, um, there's also there's also a very interesting. I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure it's Pasolini. It's a short. Goodness, what is it called? It's it's about making a Jesus movie, and one oh. of the extras cast in the film um, is uh, a very poor man. And the fact that he's cast in this film is the only reason he's been eating. Uh, And he ends up eating too much mozzarella. And then because of other actors showing up late, uh, the stars of the movie uh, being being big shots and various other reasons, he ends up hanging on the cross during the crucifixion scene all afternoon and dies of indigestion from the fact that he had eaten too much, too much cheese. Uh, and it's actually a really great, <laughs> like, like it's a good film. Uh, describing it like that makes it sound very silly. Uh, it is not, it is not played, but, like, silly, I mean, but yeah, but I can't remember it's the, silly and I can't remember the name of it. Uh, I wish I could. Um, but yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I guess the Rossellini. Um, I can't. I don't know that I've seen Rossellini's either. Yeah, I've, I definitely haven't seen Rossellini. I didn't even know that he made one. I do, I do like the back and forth between Michael Palin and uh, what's his Tim Rice. That <laughs> just like the most dismissive Michael Palin gets in the entire interview. Not even like talking to the bishop. Right. He's just so pissed that Tim Rice doesn't know who Rossellini right. is. Right. Um, Rossellini's film is called The Messiah. It came out in 1975, and uh, I've never seen it. So that's pretty yeah, late. Yeah. Now I guess that makes sense because they said he just yeah. filmed it. But. Yeah. Also, they uh, they make reference in the interview to uh, to four other Jesus comedies coming out yeah, recently, I and I can't think of, of a single one. They might have all bombed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or just disappeared. I think every time I watch it, I come away thinking something different about it. I, I really love its spirit. I don't love individual right. moments as much, but I think that you know, it's. I'm, I'm glad this movie got made, and I'm I'm glad that a lot of people see it. How often do you watch it? Probably once a year. I mean, my my family's always been huge Monty Python fans, except for this movie for whatever hmm. reason. Like the first time I saw this movie, I was probably, you know, in my mid twenties. So. I'd somehow gotten through all of Flying Circus, Holy Grail, Meaning of Life, like five times each before even thinking to watch this one. Um, But since then, I think I've probably seen it once a year. There you go. Do you have a particular time of year you watch this movie? I mean, pretty usually around Christmas. It's it's, it's kind of a good, you know, you watch White Christmas and then you watch (laughs) Life of Brian to kind of even things out. I like that. That's, That's excellent. That is beautiful. Uh, well, let's uh, let's end it on that then. Thank you so much. Right, Thank you so good. much, Michael, for uh, for joining me today, and for talking about the life of Brian. Uh, it's been delightful. And uh, thank you. It's been a pleasure to be on. Glad to have you. Uh, and thank you for listening to Cinema Credo. 
I am Adam Glass, and we'll see you next time. Strength and mercy for me, and from me every day. Thank you for listening to Cinema Credo, Conversations on Film and Faith. I'm your host and writer, Adam Bless. Film clips this week are used under fair use. Thank you to Steve Richter for the use of our theme song, Madrasita, off of his album, Beloved. Check out his work at steverichter.com. That's S-T-E-E-V-R-I-C-H-T-E-R.com. Uh-huh.